Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Well, it is January 20th, and no matter what the year, every four years, um, it's an inauguration day. A year ago today was the inauguration of uh, President Joe Biden, but I've got with me a White House official from the Vice President Gore, uh, President Bill Clinton days, Lawrence Haas, and available through Newman Communications, who's going to talk about the Kennedys. But first, I want to get your take, Lawrence, on what January 20th means to you every four years when you were at those inaugurations, I'm sure. Yes. Well, obviously, it's a very special day. It is a day when America sort of shows the world uh, what it's about, peaceful transfer of power. And it's also an exciting day in terms of a president stepping up and delivering a message about what he hopes to accomplish in the next four years. And for anyone with any historical bent, when you think about January 20th, speaking of the Kennedys, it is very difficult not to think immediately about uh, Jack Kennedy's uh, inaugural address in 1961, so 61 years ago. Uh, and just the, the, the majesty uh, of that speech, and it's widely been regarded as among the top three or four presidential inaugural addresses of all time. And, and tell us a bit about that. I know you do have a book out. It's called The Kennedys in the World, How Jack, Bobby, and Ted Remade America's Empire. Jack, of course, is JFK. So, I mean, it seems like you really followed these guys and, and you obviously love JFK. So what was his message to the world on January 20th, uh, 1960, as you just stated? Well, it was very much um, a message of strength and renewal. It was virtually entirely on foreign policy. He only had two words of domestic policy, and he slipped them in at the end at the advice of one of his uh, uh, top aides, just so that uh, it, it literally was, he didn't want to have literally no mention of domestic affairs. But it was all about the challenges that America faced in a bipolar world in which the United States uh, and its promotion of freedom and democracy was um, competing around the world for loyalty from hundreds of millions of people across the developing world with, uh, you know, Soviet communism and authoritarianism. And it was very much uh, a, a renewal in the sense of we, we will do what we need to do to make sure that freedom, that liberty, as he described it, or as he called it, and democracy would prevail in the end, would be sustained. And he called on countries of the world to join him. He called on the American people. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. So it was very much a rallying cry for, for all of us to do what we needed to do to, to sustain the very special freedom and democracy that we have enjoyed here for more than two centuries. Well, uh, Lawrence, you were in the White House. So after 
watching that speech, I'm sure, over and over, and then actually being in the White House. First of all, what was your role, and, and what was that experience like having pretty much observed history right up to that point till getting into the White House? So I was in the White House from basically the middle of 1994 through the end of 1998. So I came into the Clinton administration about a year and a half in. I was first the communications director at the Office of Management and Budget, the White House Budget Office in essence. And then after about three and a half years of that, then I was Vice President Gore's communications director um, for a year. So, you know, it was a combination of uh, a lot of internal work, a lot of writing, a lot of editing, a lot of speaking to the media, uh, uh, broadcast, TV, radio, print, and, you know, explaining and promoting the presidents. And it, when I went to Gore, the vice presidents, uh, views and agenda and platform in terms of what it's like, it's it's extremely hard work. You're drinking from a fire hose all day long, uh, and it's one crisis after another, and has nothing to do with which president it is. That's just the way it is uh, in the White House when it's so much attention on the president and the vice president. Um, so it's extremely hard, and that's why you see people leaving after a year, two years, three years. Um, I actually wound up staying a long time, I and mean, it was four and a half years. Um, but well, you saw a lot in those four and a half years, for sure. And, and one of those moments, because I feel like we've lost bipartisanship, maybe you can speak to this, was, I, you know, I'm 30, but my dad, and I hear a history over and over again about how Clinton and, and um, Newt made it work, speaker and president in 96. I feel like that was the clutch moment for uh, for the Clinton administration, wasn't it? It was among the key moments. And it came after a lot of uh, fighting uh, between uh, Clinton and, as you say, uh, House Speaker Newt Gingrich and the Republicans that he controlled. After the 1994 elections, Republicans got control of both the House and Senate at the same time for the first time in four decades. So this was a real revolution. Uh, the first you know, year, year and a half, uh, there was a lot of uh, combat and not too much accomplished. But eventually, Clinton and Gingrich and Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole uh, and others came together. And if you look at the period between 96 and the end of the Clinton presidency, there was an awful lot of bipartisan achievement, even while the two parties and all of these principal players had dramatically different views. But, you know, bipartisan compromise is that you give something to get something. And I remember being in the White House at those moments of great achievement. And it's an extraordinary, you asked me, what is it like to, to actually be in there? You really get a strong sense of history. And when there's an achievement, it is an extraordinary high. I mean, I was in the Oval Office when Clinton was celebrating certain things or when we were briefing him about certain things. And I never walked into the Oval Office and did not have an out-of-body experience, like sort of looking around, seeing the eagle, the bald eagle that's carved into the ceiling 
and thinking to myself, what in the world am I doing here? You know, how fortunate I am. So it's a great thing. Well, where are we today? Because I feel like a year into Biden, there is a lot of division, isn't there? And they say bipartisanship, but that's only a few Republicans. It's not the same as it was in the 90s. And maybe you can speak to that for a second. No, it is not the same as it was in the 1990s. I don't think it's completely gone, but there's no question that it's less common and the divisions between the parties are uh, deeper. And it's for all sorts of reasons having to do with politics, having to do with, you know, 24-7 cable TV, having to do with social media um, and all of the rest. There are just more opportunities for sharp division to be um, enunciated, but it's not completely gone. There's a broad bipartisan consensus in Washington, it seems to me, uh, with regard to policy toward China, that the United States over the last 20 or 30 years has been too soft and we need to, uh, you know, take China as a rising power and a threatening power more seriously. Last year, we had a big bipartisan infrastructure bill with 19 Republican senators. That's 19 out of 50. That's not too bad. Uh, and, uh, and all the Democrats, I believe. Um, so it happens. Uh, but I take your point that it's harder now. And for things that we should be able to find uh, bipartisan achievement on, like voting rights, for instance, uh, the parties are pretty far apart. And, you know, the Biden effort on voting rights uh, was defeated in the Senate just yesterday. Uh, it's uh, it's a very interesting dynamic in that Senate right now. Um, would the filibuster being gone have made a huge difference? I don't know. I feel like it, it's a stopgap to make sure nothing far extreme happens. Am I wrong on that? That the filibuster does stop extreme bills from getting through the Senate. Yes, and in fact, um, you're right by way of history. And the Senate itself was set up to play a role of specifically making sure that wild radical stuff did not get enacted. Because after all, House members are elected every two years. They are hypersensitive about the views of their constituents. If we were to go through a period where people believed radical things, and we took quick action, like they do in parliamentary systems, for instance, uh, and then it quickly got enacted into law, um, we would come to regret it. And we haven't had too many of those situations. We have prohibition, uh, where it was enacted and then, and then uh, unenacted, in essence. Uh, but we haven't had too many of those. Uh, the Senate is set up so that every senator runs every six years. So the idea being that they can sort of step back and take a more reasoned approach and be a little bit removed from the day-to-day uh, fluctuations in, in public opinion and, uh, you know, kind of wild, radical, flavor-of-the-day uh, proposals that might come through from the House. Now, the filibuster is an additional measure. And the tradition of the Senate is that you really – we, we really need to come together across party lines to do things. And in an era 
where one party does not have 60 votes, the minority party uh, can block it by, in essence, an unofficial filibuster. Uh, and, you know, you need 60 votes to end debate on something. And that's really what's been happening. Now, the difference is that filibusters used to be relatively rare. Now they're essentially happening, happening on almost every piece of legislation. So I do agree that eliminating the filibuster would fundamentally change the nature of the Senate, and I don't think that was a good thing. On the other hand, I do think there are ways you can rein it in, for instance, by forcing people who are trying to filibuster to literally filibuster, that is to stay on the Senate floor and keep control of the floor and keep talking until they're worn out. That's what a famous filibuster is. It's been extended far beyond that now, and I think it's it's getting it has been getting carried away in recent years, and it's hurting presidents of both parties. Uh, I'll get to President Biden in a minute, but your book, as I mentioned earlier, I'm talking with Lawrence Haas on Alex Garrett podcast. In your book, The Kennedys in the World: How Jack, Bobby, and Ted Remade America's Empire. What do you hope today's politicos learn from this book? Well, um, you know the. This is basically a new story about the Kennedys. We know a lot about them, but you know, you explore more and you find out new things. Everybody knows that Joe and Rose Kennedy uh, groomed their sons for great achievement, great success. But what nobody has focused on is they focus them to look abroad, to think about the world beyond America's borders to learn about the world, care about the world, and once they were in a position of power, uh, shape America's role in the world, and through that, uh, improve the world itself. And you see over the course of more than 60 years of the post-World War II period, uh, all three of the brothers uh, proving extremely influential in terms of America's role things like outreach to the developing world to try to, you know, enrich loyalty to the United States, um, things like, uh, you know, imposing sanctions uh, on South Africa over apartheid, which Teddy Kennedy was extremely involved in. In earlier years, things like the savvy that Jack Kennedy as president showed in peacefully resolving the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, these three gentlemen, Jack, Bobby, and Ted, in their upbringing, they all traveled extensively around the world, met foreign leaders, learned about cultures, learned about ideologies, and put all of it to great use. All three of them, I bet you don't know, uh, because almost nobody does, uh, served as foreign correspondents in their youth as part of their travel. So Jack worked for Hearst newspapers, Bobby wrote articles from the Middle East to the Boston Post, and Ted from Africa wrote articles for the International News Service. If there's anything I want to get across, other than the fact that this is a great new human interest story about these three iconic brothers, how they were raised and what they accomplished, um, I think I'd like to get across and remind um, current uh, lawmakers 
of the unique role that the United States continues to play around the world and the essential role that it plays. I mean, if we if we kind of, uh, you know, close our borders and, you know, pull in our reins and not engage as much as we used to in the world, uh, freedom and democracy are going to continue to decline around the world as they have for the last 12 years. And that's not a good thing, not only for the world, it's not a good thing for the United States because we are freer, safer, and more prosperous if the world is freer, safer, and more prosperous. So I hope people dig in, learn more about the Kennedys and understand and take the lesson from the seriousness with, with which they took America's unique role in making the world a better place. I feel like the, speaking of seriousness, the release of documents of the JFK's assassination is more like feeding to the conspiracies of it, but is there some serious that we need to know about to this day, that these documents should be released, should not be released? What are your take on all that? Well, I think people have, you know, well-reasoned skepticism uh, about the Warren Commission findings that it was you know, the assassination was by Lee Harvey Oswald, and he was a lone gunman, and he wasn't, you know, acting at the behest of anybody else. Um, on the other hand, very serious scholars have looked at this and have written very extensive reasoned books in which they have come to the conclusion that it really was Lee Harvey Oswald, and he really did act alone. So, um, you know, the issue has been looked at extensively. I can tell you that um, Bobby and Ted Kennedy uh, both were skeptical of the Warren Commission report, particularly Bobby. So uh, yes, uh, you know, the more documents are released, the more we learn uh, about any issue. Uh, so I tend to be, you know, in favor of, of more public access rather than less, whether we will learn the definitive uh, answer to the question, uh, who exactly ordered the murder of JFK? Was it a lone gunman? Was it a conspiracy? Was it inside the government? Was it the mafia? Was it Fidel Castro? I don't know if we'll ever learn the answer to, uh, to that question, but to the extent that there are documents, and more and more documents get released over time in any, for any presidency. Uh, but the more that documents are released, certainly the more that we'll learn. And whether we learn anything really explosive, only time will tell. Uh, Lawrence Haas is my guest. All right. Kennedy Democrats, I feel like, are mourning today's Democrats. And I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like today's Democratic Party is following the way or, or the torch that Kennedy sort of lit when he was president. Well, you know, um, I believe that it was maybe Mark Twain who said, or Will, I'm sorry, it was Will Rogers who said, uh, I don't uh, belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. So that goes back to the 19th century. So divisions among Democrats um, are not a new thing. Um, it is true that the Democratic Party does not seem to have the energy, the spirit, the unity 
uh, of, you know, the Jack Kennedy years, but you have to sort of take that apart a little bit and look at it. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's true uh, that, um, you know, he could rally Democrats, and in particular, people like LBJ, who, took, who obviously succeeded Kennedy, could rally the party for things. But having said that, it was a much different time. Uh, the Democratic Party uh, had very serious uh, Southern longtime lawmakers who were opposed to many measures of social progress. And yet at the same time, the Republican Party was very diverse. There were a lot of Northeastern moderate Republicans, and they would vote for Democratic legislation. Uh, uh, the the difference in the Republican Party is that they stand in lockstep these days uh, to virtually anything that a Democratic president wants to do with just these rare exceptions like the infrastructure bill last year. So uh, Jack had his challenges uh, with Southern Democrats uh, and, you know, the current Democratic president, Biden, has got his challenges uh, with a very active and somewhat angry progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He's a moderate, and he ran as a moderate. And if there's anything that I think he has done, which is an overriding mistake, it's that he's listened a little bit too much to the progressives because they are talking about making transformative change creating a new America. And when people in 2020 voted for Joe Biden, they did not vote for transformative change. They voted for normalcy after the nuttiness of the Trump four years. So I think he's misread uh, public opinion on that a little bit. And I think that partly explains some of the troubles he's having. Lawrence, I'm here. Uh, the other thing, and I know progressives kind of scares the moderate Democrats for sure. And I mean, it scares me because I feel like they want to take us to a, new, a different level. But I, I want to focus on Biden. Um, his year, it feels like a long year, to be honest. And it just seems like there's been things one after the other. Is it wrong to say he's had a shaky first year? Um, I, think it's, um, I think it's an overstatement. Uh, to suggest that it's just been one crisis after the other. I mean, think about it. He came in to office uh, and with COVID uh, raging. Obviously, we've had our ups and downs with that, but he doesn't fully control what goes on. After all, there are these states all across the country with state leaders, local leaders in open defiance of what the federal government under Biden wants to do to control this virus. I think he's worked very hard. I think he's made real progress, uh, but he's got a lot of obstacles in his way. Uh, secondly, uh, he came in uh, with the economy in the dumps, and at the moment it's roaring, and he doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves. I mean, he pushed through an America rescue plan in early 2021, 
which provided real support for the economy and real relief for people, millions, tens of millions of people all over the country who were suffering. And people tend to forget that that occurred. Now, having said that, obviously, he's had certain problems. I mean, his signature legislation, the Build Back Better legislation, as he calls it, is tied up in the Senate and probably cannot be passed in the form in which he hoped it would be after long negotiations and probably is going to have to be broken up into little parts. That is clearly a failure, no doubt about it. Uh, and of course, we had the crisis of the pullout uh, in Afghanistan, uh, which you know did, was not planned well, seemed to be rushed, uh, and we've left that country uh, now once again under the control of the Taliban. So that's been problematic. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of, with the president, there's always a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think he's restored American leadership over the Western alliance. I mean, after all, Donald Trump uh, thought that the allies were enemies. And I think Biden's done an awful lot to repair the relationship with you know, the Western allies in Europe, uh, the uh, uh, Asian allies, Japan and others, uh, at a time when China is confronting the United States uh, in the Pacific. So he's had a lot of challenges on his plate. Uh, it's been a mixed bag. I think that he doesn't get the credit he deserves for things that he's done, but there is no question that he has made mistakes and there are things that have not gone well, there's no question about it. And I appreciate your, your candidness on Alex Garrett Podcasting, Lawrence. Thank you so much for doing this today. One last thought. Uh, Sirhan Sirhan does not get granted parole, and I want to put a Kennedy into this. So is that a good thing for Kennedy fans that he was not granted parole by Newsom? What is your take on that? I think it's a good thing that he wasn't granted parole. Uh, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, for some reason, has become a cons conspiracist, a, consp a conspiracy theory uh, promoter. And among his various nutty conspiracies is that um, his thinking, after talking to Sirhan Sirhan, that he wasn't the murderer. Uh, his siblings have denounced him, uh, and his siblings have argued that Sirhan Sirhan should not be granted parole. And frankly, he was convicted of first-degree murder, and I see no reason why he should be, uh, why he should be uh, released, uh, uh, pardoned, uh, excused in any way. I mean, how, how blatant a murder uh, was that? It was out in the open. He clearly planned it in advance. He destroyed the life of an individual. He destroyed the life of a family, and he destroyed the hopes of tens of millions of people across America. I see no justification for him getting out of prison early. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. Would you mind coming back on another edition as we roll along here in 2022? I would be delighted. Thanks so much for having me. Where can we find you, uh, finally, your social medias and whatnot? Oh, well, I'm on Twitter, um, uh, uh, Larry Haas, at Larry Haas, uh, online. Um, uh, I am on Facebook, but I take great pride in the books that I write. Uh, so I should 
tell you that uh, the Kennedys in the world is readily available on uh, uh, Amazon and through uh, you know your local bookstore. If it's not on the shelf, uh, certainly they can order it. That's true of my earlier uh, books as well. And um, the other thing that I do that's part of my public um, persona is that I write uh, columns of foreign policy uh, once every, normally once every two weeks, and they show up in places like Newsweek and the National Interest and The Hill. So, um, uh, so I'm out there doing that regularly while I'm researching and writing books of American history, largely in the post-World War II period and largely uh, about America's role in the world. Well, we look forward to reading those and uh, catch them on Twitter and just uh, catch this podcast. And thank you so much, Lawrence, for joining me. We'll have you back. That would be wonderful. Thanks for having me. That was former White House official Lawrence Haas. Uh, thanks to Newman Communications again for making him available to us at Alex Garrett Podcasting. And we'll talk to you soon.